Madcap Flair offers cutting-edge technical authoring and publishing capabilities for today's technical writers and content developers with advanced features to maximize authoring efficiency, content reuse, and multi-channel publishing. By combining Madcap Central's cloud-based collaboration, publishing, and content management functionality, authors can improve content quality, gain greater insight into tasks and production schedules, work collaboratively with teams, host content, and automate processes. Madcap Flare and Madcap Central, combining the power of desktop authoring with cloud-based collaboration, publishing, and content management. Learn more at www.madcapsoftware.com. This is the Cherryleaf Podcast. How are you? Yeah, fine, thank you. A lot colder than you, I suspect. I keep oh. seeing the news reports about the heat in Australia. Yeah, it's pretty hot. It's toned down a little bit at the moment where I am. I'm in Canberra. Uh, my best friend is in Adelaide and it was 45 degrees there today. <laughs> so the way I usually start these is to ask people to introduce themselves, say who they are and what they do. Great. Um, my name's Zoe Rose and I am a user experience designer. And you're based in Canberra in Australia. Yep, Canberra, Australia. Ten beautiful years in the UK before that, and we are now here in the Great Southern Hemisphere. And you're originally Australian, so it's back to your roots, I believe. Yes, pretty much. So I grew up in Canberra. When we came back from the UK, we actually came back to Melbourne, which is a bustling, thriving metropolis, and promptly realised that we are not really bustling, thriving metropolis people. So ah. we came back to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your work in the UK and in Australia has been primarily around user experience. And I thought that would be a good topic to have a conversation about. It always makes sense to start from scratch with asking questions such as, what is user experience? Well, I can tell you why I answer the question when people ask me, what do I do? Right. I say, I'm a designer. I don't do fonts. I don't do colors and I don't do pictures. Mm -hmm. And if they think that sounds boring and do not ask another question, then I leave it be. Um, <laughs> thus, trying to deliver a good experience to my interlocutor, my user. So the core of user experience is identifying what people need to do in a given environment, how they can best do it, mm -hmm. and whether the way that you think is the best way to do it is actually the way that makes sense to them. So we do all the aspects of design that sit around the parts that aren't particularly visual. An experienced designer will probably, under ideal circumstances, spend about half their time doing research. So first we research, what is this problem? Is it a problem worth solving? Is there something useful we can do here? Mm -hmm. And then we spend a lot of time coming up with solutions and then we come up with whether or not those solutions actually do solve the problem. And at the very end, we research again, say, okay, we've come up with this solution and we've built this website, we've got this prototype, mm -hmm. we think we've got something that works, we put it in front of real human beings and see what they do. So you say you identify problems what are the problems that exist that UX solves? Yep. So this is an area that gets kind of nebulous kind of fast because the answer, depending on who you ask, mm -hmm. will go between problems that people can solve using websites through to literally everything in the whole world. 
So there's a lot of spread. Hmm. Now, UX at the moment is really very much in a state of flux. It is not a discipline with firm boundaries the way that being a plumber or being an electrician or, in fact, being a technical author would be. So we emerged as a sub-discipline from the early discipline that was just generally called web design, which was a bit visual. It was a bit marketing. It was a bit usability. It was all things to all people. Hmm. And UX kind of bubbled out of that. And what's happening now is people are looking at UX and going, well, you know what? This field of user experience design is actually so big and so hairy in and of itself that it probably needs breaking up again. So we have people now who will identify themselves as being part of sub-disciplines like interaction design. Mm-hmm. As a researcher, is a significant and fast-growing sub-discipline, probably mm-hmm. the fastest growing. We have people who identify as content designers, which is very close to technical authoring. Mm-hmm. And in a completely separate part of the conversation, we have the emerging field of service design. Now, nobody's sure yet whether the service design is part of UX mm-hmm. or UX is part mm-hmm. of service design. So it's all still very much a bubbling pot. Mm-hmm. Probably might make sense to, to clarify what is meant by service design. Well, it's an emerging field with emerging interpretations as to where its meaning will ultimately land. Mm-hmm. I tend to think that the division is emerging that UX is really more of a screen and interaction with screen-based discipline mm-hmm. where service design can happen in any context. So, for example, if you imagine somebody trying to work out wayfinding and signage in a hospital, mm-hmm. that's part of the service of delivering healthcare via the hospital, so that might be part of service design. And then actually registering to book an appointment, that would be... UX. If it was through the website, it would probably be UX. If it was calling up on the phone and being put through to someone who could help you the first time, it could easily fall in service design. So when I say the edges are sticky, Mm -hmm. they they are very sticky indeed. What are the sort of typical benefits people get from considering UX and going through a process of looking at the user experience? That question will always be contingent on the business or organizational goals. Mm -hmm. So the only function that UX designers really have is to make things better for users. Determining what that is, is going to be connected to, but not necessarily restricted by business goals. So one of the things that we often do is assist businesses in identifying where the problem they really have is Mm. and what the source of the thing is. So it would be very easy for a business to walk up to a UX designer and say, we have a problem with our website and we need to integrate social media feeds. Can you help us put social media feeds somewhere nice and prominent on our website where people will use them? Now, that's a solution. It might be that when we go through that research process that ideally makes up 50% of UX's time, we might determine that actually the problem is not like a lack of social media feeds, it's that the company is just perceived as being unresponsive. Mm. You know, And if you had chat functionality built into the website 
or even if you had like, you know, a backup person to pick up the phone, Mm. that could do the job faster and better. Mm. So they might be thinking that they're solving one problem and actually there's a different problem that actually needs to be solved or a more fundamental problem. Yes. So ideally in UX, Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about solving the right problem as being 50% of the job Mm -hmm. and solving the problem right as being the other 50% of the job. So if I gave you a perfect solution to a problem that wasn't actually a big deal for your business, Mm. that's not advantaging you. It's that classic thing of people going in saying, I want penicillin, when actually a doctor's Mm -hmm. role is to diagnose before they prescribe and find out what it is that you need, and also to verify that what is given will solve that problem. So is this only for central government and big businesses? I think over the last 10 years or so, I don't think I've realistically seen a business that either hasn't been trying to integrate UX or that doesn't have areas that could be improved by bringing a little bit of UX in. Mm -hmm. We are going through a phase that could be considered uh, kind of a boom. Two things happening at once. One thing that is happening with us is our field is expanding and expanding rapidly and attracting new practitioners. But the other thing that's happening is that it's breaking up Mm. and you have people describing themselves as interaction designers, animation designers, and service designers, very importantly, Mm -hmm. all of those things coming out. Who needs a UX designer? People who have interactions with people who have problems, Mm -hmm. I think, is the key answer there. So there's no restriction, no natural limit on the people who might or might not benefit from having a UX designer around. Because the practices, skills, and ways of working of UX are not connected to a specific industry, business, or organizational practice, they can be applied in almost any context. Mm. They won't necessarily be appropriate for exactly the situation you're in, My neighbor is a builder. I'm not sure that he would have much use for me, even Mm. though he does solve problems for clients on on a daily basis. But we do tend to pop up anywhere that things aren't going very well for your client base. Mm. Is it the case, I sound like a lawyer Mm -hmm. here, that the need for user experience is partly affected by how many people are using the thing, how important it is for them to do the thing, and how complex it is to actually achieve that goal? Or is, is it more complex than that? Is there more considerations as to whether you need or don't need somebody to come in and fix your user experience? To be honest, I think it's fair to say that the more complex process that a user has to go through is, and the more users there are, the more use a UX will be. I think that's a fair statement. If I was a niche boutique agent Mm -hmm. who sold tea towels and I had a very good standing relationship with an existing customer base who all had my phone number, Mm. perhaps it would not be so useful for me. If on the other hand, I was trying to run a tea towel retailing wholesaler with a very diffuse customer base who might be operating in different cultural contexts, who might be operating with different language systems, a different visual vocabulary, which is something that impacts on websites that cater to more than one culture uh, surprisingly often. At 
that stage, yes. So part of our job is to find something that will work successfully for the largest number of people to complete the task they set out to achieve Mm. successfully. If you're dealing with very small numbers that you know well, that doesn't apply to you so much. If, on the other hand, you're an energy company, for example, and you're trying to work out how people read their electricity bills online, you really need to be confident that somebody can do that, whether they have a high or low level of literacy, whether they have English as their second or third language, whether they have a high level of aptitude with using technology or not, and if they have any impairments that would get in the way of them using a purely visual or purely mouse-based interface. We call that last one, catering to people with disabilities. We call that accessibility, or my preferred term is universal design, which just means exactly what it sounds like, that it works universally. There's also another factor in what you said there is, from a company perspective, it's helping them scale their solution and connected with that grow their company and implement more mature processes so that's not relying at throwing people at something or, or relying on individuals but having robust systems that provide the services that people need without human intervention yes there are different cost associations with different means of contacting businesses to use one example now if i remember correctly there was some research done at the outset of gov.uk where they compared the different costs Mm. of somebody going to a government shop front is what I would call it in Australia. So an office with a desk where you can say, I have this problem with my parking fine Mm -hmm. versus doing the same thing over the phone versus finding the information online and completing it online. And the cost differentials were astronomical. I do not trust myself to remember the numbers, Mm. but it was many, 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 many times more expensive to go to a a shop front. Mm. Many, many, many times more expensive to call up on the phone Mm. and not very expensive to do it online. Now, here's the catch, though. If the online service does not work, the user will call on the phone or go to the shop front. Mm. So it's not enough to say online is cheaper. Online is only cheaper if online works. Mm. If online does not work, online is significantly more expensive and that's where the UXs come in. It has to be the line of least resistance for the end user, doesn't it? Absolutely. If it doesn't work, people won't use it. It's, we are quite confident in saying that in our discipline, we've seen the numbers. <laughs> if somebody wants to do UX, as it were, mm-hmm. can anyone do it? What skills are needed? Okay, can anyone do it? I would say the answer to that question does not depend on your work history or stage of life. Mm -hmm. It would depend, I think, on perhaps some of your aptitudes, but those are very loosely connected with what we have seen to be successful. So the great advantage of UX is that we will basically take anybody. One of the most skilled juniors that I've worked with in the last few years started life as an industrial glassblower. I had a very talented student in a UX course I taught who'd come out of life as a professional DJ and warehouse manager. Mm. 
really the door is more open than it is in a lot of professional disciplines. Mm -hmm. But there's a catch to this, and the catch is twofold. The first part of the catch is that there's no clear route in. We do not currently have any reliable forms of accreditation. Mm -hmm. We do not currently have any robust training or even apprenticeship programs that I think would be really very good for us. Mm -hmm. But So that's one part of the flip side, no easy route in. And the second part of the flip side is that there's a lot of room for people to just change their LinkedIn so it says UX and see what happens. Yeah. So we are not unencumbered with chances. There was a stage before UX started to truly boom where the community was sufficiently small in most places that vetting could largely happen through reputation. Yeah. But the thing about reputation is reputation does not scale. So we are no longer able to say, oh, yeah, Sunil, I know that guy, he's good. Mm. Sunil could be anybody these days. There's a bit of a gap in our processes for deciding who is and is not competent in the field. Yeah. Fortunately, that has coincided almost perfectly with a great deficit in our clients being able to determine whether the work we've handed in is at the standard that they expected it to be mm. when they hired us or not. So there is bad work being done. I wish there wasn't. Mm. It's not a problem which has been solved yet, but given that UX is by definition a profession that solves problems, I certainly hope we'll be able to sort it out soon. I think part of the problem is it is multifaceted. It covers a lot of different things and it, it can be quite hard to scope it down to a course. You've written some articles on Medium about the professionalisation and whether there should be restrictions on who can and can't call themselves a certain job titles. What do you think is the direction that the professional will go to solve this problem? Historically, every profession that calls itself a profession has gone through a fairly similar process. Mm -hmm. Now, in Australia, we use a fairly specific definition of the word professional, mm -hmm. and it's a definition which boils down to, do you work in air conditioning? So in our culture, we regard anyone who works in an office as being a professional, and anyone who works outdoors as being a tradie. Now, it's not a particularly useful definition. Right. The original definition of professional was someone who professed something. What were they professing? It's a set of value statements and commitments to areas of practice. The idea of ethics and adherence to ethics is used to be, and to my mind should be, the definitional criteria hmm. for a profession. Doctors say they won't do any harm. Accountants say they won't defraud their clients. In any given profession, the professional has a ability that people who aren't in that profession don't have, which is the ability to harm their clients. Mm -hmm. An accountant can hurt you in ways an accountant can't. A dentist can hurt you yeah. in ways that a non-dentist can't. And plumbers uh, as well. Plumbers are, <laughs> plumbers are trade. So this is what, but yeah. So is there such a thing as plumbing ethics is actually a really interesting question. An electrician, you have to be qualified as an electrician to do yeah. work because of the safety aspect. Yeah. And that division means, I think, that the historical division between a profession and a trade is, is a lot less pertinent than it ever used to be because mm -hmm. there are accreditations on both sides. Yeah. 
But at the moment, there's no accreditation for my line of work at all. I have less qualifications than a hairdresser Mm. by a lot. I actually have less qualifications than people who do holistic medicine for that matter. But there's Mm. there's a lot of people that have fewer qualifications. The process that professions have historically gone through to be accepted as professions has usually involved a period of crisis and really significant distrust that the profession has only been able to get out of by implementing a code of practice and compelling its users to adhere to it. So before lawyers became a profession, Mm -hmm. there was a period of extreme distrust of lawyers and uh, you'll be aware that culturally that distrust still exists. So let me put the counter argument to you. This is true for technical authors also, that the safety element isn't there. If somebody does a bad website or bad user documentation for software, that's a completely different matter for, say, aircraft and the like, nobody dies as such. The way that it's been tackled within the world of technical communication is that it moves more towards saying the deliverables have to conform to a standard. So mm. it has to conform to the CE mark. It has to conform to this law or that law. So anybody can still do it, but they have to do it to a particular standard. How would you respond to that argument? I think there's a lot of merit to that, but I'm not sure we're going to end up with a one-to-one equivalency mm-hmm. because UX goes broader and the problems being solved are often more diverse. There's a designer called Mike Montero, mm-hmm. who I'm quite fond of, who has tracked this historically. And something he's fond of saying is that in the mid-1990s, if he did his job badly, then a link was broken. Today, if he does his job badly, you can lose your benefits, mm. not get your cancer screening check-in. Yeah. You can be killed. So it's the scale of the impact that UX can have on a human life has ex- increased exponentially. And I do see an equivalency there with technical documentation and how technical documentation has ramifications that go far beyond what they would have perhaps even 10 years ago, you would know a lot better than I would. There are ISO standards for UX. They don't update frequently. Mm -hmm. And as we see different aspects of UX practice being broken off into emerging disciplines, we lose the ability to even get to that level of adherence. If you had two people looking at the same piece of UX work, you could easily get two interpretations mm. as to whether the standard will met or not. It's quite difficult. And we have the same issue actually with our WCAG, which is the World Wide Web Consortium Accessibility Guidelines mm. currently at 2.1 uh, for universal design for people with uh, impaired ability to use computers. That's going through the same thing as well. It's actually quite ambiguous. So Part of me would love it if this was a area where standards alone could certify the absolute validity of the work. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing and have seen with those standards is that they're good guides, but it's quite difficult to determine whether they have unambiguously been met or not. Would it be fair to say that the biggest impact has been disability discrimination legislation? Oh, 
Oh boy. Uh, so there are several ways to approach that. The accessibility guidelines were written in such a way that they were untethered from the capacities of HTML and CSS. So the first version came out in 1999 and it was very heavily tethered to HTML and it became very, very quickly obvious that that was hampering people and HTML was moving faster than the guidelines were. So they decoupled it in, in the next iteration and that has been the thing that led to ambiguities. I think that the WCAG guidelines at this stage mm -hmm. have been interpreted by the professional community more as a hindrance than an opportunity for innovation. Mm -hmm. And that really causes me quite a lot of, well, it makes me angry is, is what I'm trying to say here because mm -hmm. what we've historically found in design is that when you design something for the hardest use case, somebody who perhaps can't see, can't use their hands properly, mm -hmm. has to blow into a stick to move a cursor around, or who might have dyslexia, dyscalculia, mm -hmm. which is all the fun of dyslexia but for numbers. Yeah. If you solve for problems like that, what we find is you get a better solution for literally everybody. Mm. Our UXs at the moment have a very nasty habit of regarding the WCAG standards as being a checklist and something you have to tick off, mm. which you can't do because they're very ambiguous to start with and were designed explicitly to be ambiguous. Mm. And in doing so, miss out on the fabulous opportunity to create things that work significantly better for everyone. A lot of the time, if you go to a meetup where somebody is giving a talk about accessibility, it will follow a very standard pattern. I've been to a lot of them. First off, somebody tells you that there's no excuse not to have accessibility mm. in, in quite a chiding way. And then they talk about color contrast ratios for the rest of the talk. Color contrast ratios are included in WCAG for supporting people with limited vision. Mm. They are one out of a couple of hundred provisions, but most of us in UX start and stop there. Mm. And the irony of it is high levels of color contrast are actually really bad for anyone who has a neurological disorder that lowers their ability to process text-based information. Mm which if you think of dyslexia, that's about 6% of the population right there. Mm. So I don't think we've done well enough on this yet by a long shot. Mm. We're still learning what needs to be best practice, which makes it hard to define what best practice should be. Absolutely. Somebody wants to do this. How do people, what's the best route for people to get the skills to do UX design well? It's an interesting question because I think the answer I would give to this today mm -hmm. is probably different from the answer I'd give even three years ago and definitely different from the answer I'd give 10 years ago. For my own part, I fell into it by accident. The first time I drew wireframes, I quite literally did not know they were called wireframes. <laughs> No, that's, that's, that's not a joke. That's literally true. I had been put in a position where I was supposed to be sorting out the back end of a product that didn't exist. I figured somebody had to make it exist. No one else was there. So I did it. It was um, an unusual situation. To be completely honest, I don't think that would happen to anyone now. 
and that's probably all to the good because I should not have been doing those wireframes with the level of skill I had at the time. There are more and less formal routes in. I have recently finished a stint of teaching two courses at General Assembly, which offers intensive UX courses. They are very intense. They go for three months and nobody sleeps. Something that I'm really, really interested in is that there are a very, very large number of people in organizations, large and small, corporate, government, medium business, who are effectively doing about 50% of a designer's job Mm. and have never, ever been told that the work they're doing is design. Mm. So those are the people who I would love for us to find, build and nurture. There is a huge amount of design work being done around the world by people who have never thought of themselves as designers, would never think of themselves as designers, and unfortunately don't have access to designers in their organizations who are willing to sit down, have a cup of coffee with them and say, hey, did you know what you've just been doing is user research? Did you know you've just been doing usability research? You've made up like 50% of a really good usability testing service other people have been here first, let me give you some resources. So I have to suspect that quite a few of those would be in the technical authoring community. I hope that routes open for people to come to understand the skills that they have developed Mm -hmm. and can continue developing, but I do not know what those routes will be yet. I've got a question here, a handbrake turn in some ways, back to what we were talking about earlier, and that is, how do you distinguish between UX and content, and what's the relationship between the two of them? They're coming together. Mm. We are seeing an emerging discipline in UX right now, which is called content design. This is one of the emerging uh, fields under that UX banner. One of the luminaries in that field is a woman called Sarah Richards, who in the UK, you are lucky to have living right there with you. And she has really been the pioneer of establishing content design as a discipline. She's written a book. It's a very good book. I would recommend it. That world of content is budding fast. Content is increasingly being seen as part of design as a specialism in design and as a specialism that designers can promote themselves as having. Could a technical author just step in, change their name and say, I'm a content designer, hire me? Somebody who just finished their GCSE could say they were a content designer, hire me. Absolutely nothing preventing that because we have no accreditation. I would say, though, that someone who is a technical author would be very well advised if they were thinking about moving into content design or assessing their skills to discover whether they were content designers already and just hadn't been using the world, have a discussion with anyone you can find who is an established content designer and see whether it matches because it is very likely to. Content design is already breaking into sub-disciplines. We talk in UX a great deal about microcopy. So microcopy might be the difference between having a button labeled go, save, complete, mm-hmm. or save and complete. 
I don't know which one of those would be the best in a specific context. Mm. I don't. But I would be, and with my UX hat on, I would be conducting usability research to see what happened if I put that in front of people mm. and uh, saw what they did. So microcopy is something where I think technical authors would probably enjoy themselves and find they had like a lot of aptitude and a lot of crossover skills. But I think they would struggle without some skills in doing research because often there isn't the time to research the users. There is time to research the products, but often in a technical writing project, the author is the user. That is the differentiating factor. The purists in our industry are inclined to say if it's got no research, it's not UX. Mm. And to be honest, I'm inclined to agree with them. Mm. So that's an area of differentiation. But research skills are just that. They are skills. They are acquirable. Mm. So in terms of about you and contacting you, getting access to your articles or even engaging you, what's the answer to those questions? I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I have never in my life regretted making a new professional connection so I'm always happy to talk to everybody and we have talked so much today about UX roots into UX identifying whether you might already be doing a lot of UX work that I would be something of a cad if I did not invite people to contact me if they had <laughs> any questions and your website is oero.se if I remember correctly yes which is, yes, it's Zoe Rose with a dot before the SE. It's a little affectation <laughs> on my part. <laughs> and are you available for work? Will be available for work in the near future? What's the situation there? A deeply ironic situation. I have been a disability advocate for a long time and I have given conference presentations about disability and I have berated many of my colleagues about disability, but I have not until two months ago been myself disabled. Mm. Well, that's changed. I am currently recovering from a significant injury. I can't do much in the way of getting around. So I am, in fact, currently mobility impaired and will be for a little while. But I am available for bits and pieces of work where they don't require me to leave the house because mm. there's 14 steps outside my house and it's really very difficult. <laughs> So off-site work available for that type of thing. That's good to know. I am waiting for my physio to tell me. Right. Well, I hope you get better soon, I should say that. Well, the interesting thing about impairments, and it can't be said often enough, is that anything that works for somebody who has an impairment will usually work better for someone without one. Mm. And I think that it's a challenge that, Pretty much everybody who deals with technology as part of their professional life can benefit from engaging with. Mm. Well, that's probably a, an appropriate ending to the conversation. Alice, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Zoe. Just a few final things to say. We're taking on new writing projects during 2019 and new vacancies if you need help filling those. And we launched a new training course just before Christmas on structured writing. And if you could rate us or give feedback on iTunes or other pod catching systems, that would be fantastic. And if you like 
more information on how to be a better technical communicator, we have a newsletter that goes out for free every month. You can subscribe to that if you go to our website. And if you've got any feedback or suggestions or thoughts, you can email us, info at cherryleaf.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, either the company Twitter account, which is CherryleafLTD, or my personal Twitter account, which is Ellis Pratt. I think that's it. So until the next time, thank you for listening.